Okay, and I get the pleasure this afternoon of introducing our speaker, Kate, um, Kate Middleton. She's, um, I had the pleasure of meeting Kate last summer um, at one of their church leaders' um, retreats. Um, Kate is the assistant pastor of Zio Church um, in Hitchin, and they do great things there. So um, it was a pleasure to be there and do speak to her about those things. But today she's here um, to speak about fearless. And one of the things that um, other roles that Kate um, does is she's the director of Mind and the Mind and Soul Foundation. Um, if you haven't come across the Mind and Soul Foundation, I highly recommend it to you. They're doing a great job in seeing Christians and churches just um, take on board what it means um, to not be well, to have emotional health problems going on. And actually, us as leaders, it's really important that we begin to invest in those things for ourselves and for our churches because we want to run the race well. So I'm just going to pray for Kate um, this afternoon. My Father, I, I just pray right now that your presence just fills this space. And as Kate begins to speak about having anxiety, Lord, having fear in our life, that you will move in this space. That, Father, we would just not see our minds transformed and our hearts, Lord Jesus, but we will just see this as a moment that carries on from here, Lord Jesus, to the people that we, that we lead and that we extend our hands towards. Come and just give Kate the words that will really impact us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. Give her a warm welcome. Thank you very much. That's awesome. And, and that's two intros I've had here today and no Kate Middleton jokes, which is remarkable, actually. So that's something to be proud of. Well done. Normally, everywhere I go, I get Kate Middleton jokes. So yes, no, no relation to any of the royal family. I have no insider information on anybody's fallings out with anybody else or anybody's moving anywhere. But I, do, I would quite like to move to Canada. So if anybody wants to make me any offers, then I'm open to those. So let me tell you a little bit about me and about the Mind and Soul Foundation before I move on to talk a bit about our topic today. So the Mind and Soul Foundation, we are, as you've already heard, a national organisation. We are passionate about this space that's to do with mental and emotional health and well-being. So that starts from a place sometimes where people are struggling with things. Maybe we're thinking about ill health. Somebody's got an illness, an issue, something that they're unwell with. But we are also passionate about the wider context of well-being, mental health, emotional health. And that is about what does it mean to do this life really well? What does it mean, particularly in the challenges of 21st century living, to not just survive, not just get through, but to really thrive, to flourish, to release the maximum potential of who you are, of who God created you to be, of the life that he longs for you to have. How do we manage the challenges of 21st century living? And, and as you've heard, we can think about that as how we do that for other people. But the reality with mental and emotional health, as much as we might like to think of it as a kind of them and us story, it, it isn't like that because we all have mental and emotional health. So we're interested and we're passionate about how these things affect us as leaders as well. How do we do life? How do we do the challenges of the same things that the people who we're supporting are also struggling with? 
Because it isn't about, mental and emotional health isn't about a well box over here, which we're in, and then over here, a sort of box full of ill people, poor them, who are the people that we're supporting and caring for. Mental and emotional health is a line, and we all go up and down it. Life can throw challenges at you. And today's topic is perhaps one of the most key for that space, a topic that is so often now talked about as an illness, fear, anxiety, worry, these topics which cause us so much angst in the 21st century. And we know that more than one in 10 people are going to struggle at some point with an anxiety disorder, with fear and anxiety that has become so crippling, so overwhelming, that it's moved into that space that we would consider illness. Those rates are even higher in young people in a generation of people growing up in our culture now, maybe as high as one in five, one in six young people. In one online study looking at students, a student population, 90% of them said that they were struggling with crippling anxiety. Issues like panic attacks that are becoming so much more common. But I, as a psychologist, looking at the healthy human mind, this amazing brain that God designed, that we all have and inhabit, I know that anxiety is actually an essential human emotion. So although we can experience fear and anxiety as things that hold them back, we also have to recognise that there's something about normal life and normal living that will involve these difficult experiences. So what I want to ask today in this session is how do we manage fear and anxiety, therefore, both for us, but also for people that we're supporting? And and how do we integrate our understanding of those things from a perspective as a psychologist, which is my background, but also from our understanding of theology, from the Bible, from, from the way that God created and designed us to work? this amazing human brain and body that God designed? How do we get rid of them? Because that is basically the question that we ask with anxiety, isn't it? What people come to me, what they really hope I'm gonna say is how can I eradicate fear and anxiety from my life? How can I become fearless? I don't want to experience these things at all. I wanna sail through life and leadership and the challenges of growing up and adult maturity and just not be afraid because we don't enjoy feeling fear, do we? But I want us to journey through and think, actually, is that, is that the best approach to these things or not? And I want to do that looking at a passage from the New Testament. I want to explore some of the language that's used in the New Testament, because I don't know if, if, like me, one of the things I hear a lot around anxiety and theology is somebody somewhere usually will say, did you know that there is a fear not in the Bible for every day of the year. Have you heard that? Yeah, yeah, lots of nods around the room. Actually, it depends on your translation and it depends which words, and so it's a little bit vague. Most people would agree there's not quite that many. But, but what does it mean then in the Bible when it says things like fear not? Again, is there a message there that we should somehow be getting rid of these emotions? What does the Bible teach us? So I want to look at a story from the life of Jesus and the disciples that looks at an experience of fear and anxiety. And it is from Matthew 14. You can read along with me. I'm going to pop it up on the screen. This is the um, contemporary English version of the Bible. You might have a different one on your phone or in your hand or whatever it is. But let's just have a quick read through it. And what I want to do is draw out from this and from our understanding of psychology and the way the human mind works, some basic understandings and some key 
key points for us to learn about fear and anxiety. So let's have a read. Right away, Jesus made his disciples get into a boat and start back across the lake. But he stayed until he'd sent the crowds away. Then he went up on a mountain where he could be alone and pray. Later that evening, he was still there. By this time, the boat was a long way from the shore. It was going against the wind and was being tossed around by the waves. A little while before morning, Jesus came walking on the water towards his disciples. When they saw him, they thought he was a ghost. They were terrified and started screaming. At once, Jesus said to them, don't worry, I am Jesus, don't be afraid. And Peter replied, Lord, if it is really you, tell me to come to you on the water. Come on, Jesus said. And Peter then got out of the boat and started walking on the water towards him. But when Peter saw how strong the wind was, he was afraid and started sinking. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Right away, Peter, Jesus reached out his hand. He helped Peter up and said, you surely don't have much faith. Why do you doubt? And then when Jesus and Peter got back into the boat, the wind died down. So what do we understand from this story so often told about anxiety? And I want to suggest to you right at the beginning of this session that emotions, much as they might be inconvenient, have a purpose. That much as we might prefer not to have them sometimes, there is a job that your emotions are designed to do in your brains. We know from our study, from our understanding of the human mind, that when we look at people who don't have a normal experience of emotions, maybe they've had a brain injury or an accident, something that's caused their brain to not be functioning as it should, so they don't have an emotion like anxiety, you might think these people, they're like, they're going to be running the world, they're going to be the superpower people, but they're not. The loss of an emotion like anxiety absolutely devastates people. It is incapacitating to not have an emotion like anxiety. So without them, we actually can't function. And you can think of anxiety as a little bit like a smoke alarm. It has a job which is about warning you that something significant might be going on. Anxiety is an emotion that's triggered in your mind when there is uncertainty and risk, potential risk, in your future. And its job is to grab your attention, to set you up in case you need to react. So you can see on the screen now a, a model that I use to talk about emotions that, that really describes them as being a bit like striking a match. And so your brain triggers an emotion when it needs to tell you that something, signific something significant might be going on. There are parts of your brain whose job is to scan the world around you continually to tell you, is there something here you might need to do something about? So we in our household, for reasons that I actually am struggling to remember, have just agreed to let our kids have yet another kitten. I, I just don't know what I was thinking. We already had two cats, we now have three. Three feels like a lot of cats in my household right now. And the other night, I'm cooking dinner, and as usual at that time of the night, I'm dealing with the questions from my son, and there's a million things going on, and I've got emails still on my phone from work. And as I'm cooking, suddenly I'm feeling like a pang of anxiety. I mean, I'm not like freaking out, but I'm aware that suddenly I'm like, what, what's going on? Why am I suddenly, my attention's been diverted. And then right at the edge of my peripheral vision, we have some tall shelves in our kitchen that go right up to the ceiling. And I can see on the top shelf, 
said kitten. She's like this big. I still don't know how she got up there, but she's about to launch herself from the shelf onto the table where my son is doing his homework. It was not going to end well. So I'm able to divert and catch the kitten whilst keeping the dinner going. It's all fine. But that is a typical example of how anxiety is supposed to work. Life is busy. There's so much to distract us. How do you know what you need to pay attention to? You know, there's a whole whole field of artificial intelligence where they try to create computer models that act like the human brain. And when that field was in its infancy, when they started to design these algorithms, of course they didn't put emotions in because why would you? Of course we'd be better without an emotion like anxiety. But what they found is those models were overwhelmed by the complexity of the world. You cannot make every decision in your life by absolute rational thinking. What do you want for breakfast this morning? Is it toast or cereal, tea or coffee in the break? These are not decisions that you can say, just a second, I'm just going to do a full and detailed pro and con analysis. You just have to decide. Some things need to go by instincts. Your emotions grab your attention. They help you make good decisions. They help you focus on the things that matter. And they do this because they harness a system, an emotion like anxiety in particular, called the fight or flight system. You all have heard of this probably. It's a complex physiological system. It's the same one that your stress response functions on. And the first job of that system is it grabs your attention because it doesn't feel nice when you feel anxious. You get that churny stomach feeling, you're fidgety, your heart's racing, you can't stand still. That's what it feels like when that system's turned on and it grabs your attention. It literally stops you in your tracks. It's hard to ignore because its job is to get your attention. That's what makes anxiety such a nuisance. And then, of course, it's also set you up so that you can react if you need to. Do you need to run away? Do you need to fight something? Do you need to act fast and catch a kitten? You're ready in case you need to react. That's the same system. And then at the same time, it's triggered, it changes in your thinking mind. Your attention has become diverted. You become what's called hypervigilant. If you ever have one of those moments when you're lying awake in bed at night and you think you hear something weird, what's that noise? Suddenly you can hear every noise in the house that you would never normally hear. That's hypervigilance. Your brain is like, actually, suddenly something has become significant and you're It's on the lookout for it. It's analysing the world around. Do you need to act or don't you? And ideally, it's like striking a match. An emotion like anxiety is short-lived because once you've figured that out, do I need to do something or not? Just like a match, it burns out. So the job of emotions is not to make decisions for us. Their job is to trigger analysing. Sometimes we have problems because we've promoted them to too senior a position in our brains. And we're letting them make decisions when they were only ever designed to warn us. Like the smoke alarm that doesn't tell you that there definitely is a fire. I used to always ask at this point in this talk, in conferences like this, how many people the last time their smoke alarm went off, the house actually was burning down. And then I had a conference where everybody laughed except one person who was like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, that's awkward. So I'm not going to ask that now. But mostly when your smoke alarm goes off, it is what? Toast, bacon. My daughter trying to wedge a croissant in the toaster, which does not work. Something else. Sometimes the job when an emotion like anxiety goes off is not to react. It's to do the emotional equivalent of the smoke alarm dance. Who knows the smoke alarm dance? 
Yes, that's right. We all know it. If you were teenagers, I'd make you stand up and do it, but I won't. So the thing is, an emotion like anxiety may not be a choice. Your brain triggers it for a purpose. But what you do next is a choice. You have the power to decide what happens next. So you may not be able to decide whether you have the initial emotion, but what happens next on in the story is your decision. How we respond to an emotion like anxiety and fear and worry is everything. It changes everything. And so often the message we get about these emotions is one of guilt. If you were a better person, you wouldn't feel like this. What a wimp. Why are you obsessing over this? Get a grip. Do not fear. You shouldn't even be having this emotion. You're a senior leader. What's wrong with you? Sometimes we say this to ourselves. What is wrong with me? Why am I suddenly crippled by this emotion? But having an emotion like anxiety often isn't a choice. It's your brain trying to tell you something matters. I say this all the time to people. Anything in life that matters to you will trigger anxiety. It's your brain's way of telling you it's important. Whether that's an exam you're sitting, no matter how well prepared you are. Whether it's the things your teenage kids are doing. Whether it's the new church plant you're launching. Whatever that stuff is, a lot of life's biggest moments inevitably come with anxiety. We often can't choose not to experience it, but we can choose how we respond. This is a quote from a very interesting guy called Alex Honnold. Alex is a free climber. Some of you may have seen the movie Free Solo, which is such an awesome film about one of his utterly crazy climbing experiences. Free climbers climb with no ropes, no safety equipment. It is clearly properly nuts. And as part of the movie, uh, they talk to Alex about his experience of fear and anxiety. And he's actually part of some psychological experiments looking at the way that his body and brain respond to the sort of stimulus that would normally trigger these emotions. And it's quite an interesting moment looking at how he experiences them. And he says this, talking about his own experience. He says, the key thing thinking about fear is to differentiate between real justified fear and fake anxiety. Fear is a physiological response. Your body is basically sending you a signal in the same way that hunger is a signal or sleepiness is a signal. And whether or not you choose on it, choose to act on it is up to you. And he says this, which is very interesting. Fear doesn't need to rule you. And actually what Alex is talking about there is the key to anxiety. The question is who is in charge? It isn't can you eradicate it? Should you be able to get rid of it? It is how do we react? Do you feel at the mercy of your fear? Has it got you on the run? And what I want to do is look at two of the words that are used in the New Testament for fear and anxiety and and take us on a journey through this story that we've just read to think about, well, how then do we react to fear and anxiety and how can we help people who are struggling with these emotions to manage them better? So this is the first word, and this is the one that's used uh, in the passage that we've just looked at. And it is the Greek word phobos or phobos. It is the word that has the same root as our English word for phobia. So you'll recognize it. And what's really interesting about this word, although it's often translated as, as fear, do not fear, is that it actually holds a much wider meaning than just the pure emotion. 
So this word literally in the Greek language has this meaning to, that it isn't just about experiencing an emotion, it's about how you react to it. And what it means literally is to flee, to run away, to withdraw because of anxiety. It is feeling like you have to run because you're inadequate, because you don't have the resources to deal with this. It is, it is the emergency signal that your brain can send you that says, get out of here. This is happening and it's bad and you need to get out. The focus of this word is on the action, not the emotion. Which is very interesting when it comes to our psychological understanding of an emotion like fear and anxiety. Because we know that one of the most tricky things about these emotions is that often our instinctive response to them actually makes them worse. Because if you think about it, what do you generally do when something makes you anxious? I mean, let's say that you have a bad experience of something. Uh, you're walking down the street one day and a big dog jumps up at you and it barks at you or it bites you or something bad happens. And, and let's move on a bit and, and weeks or months later, you're walking down a different street and you see a, another big dog. What do you do? You cross the road or you turn round, or you avoid it, don't you? Because you're experiencing anxiety, which, which says to you something bad might happen. So you, you take an action to avoid the dog. So the bad thing doesn't happen. Excellent, job done, anxiety managed. Except every time you do that, every time you see a big dog and you avoid it, your brain strengthens a link in your mind. And what that says is the only reason the bad thing didn't happen is because I avoided it. And every time you avoid big dogs, you strengthen that belief in your mind. And every time that happens, bit by bit by bit, what you're learning is, if I ever don't avoid a big dog, that bad thing almost definitely will happen. So over time, what happens is our fear of big dogs that started because of one incident actually grows. The decisions that we make in the moment to manage anxiety, instead of making it go away long-term, actually enable it to grow and spread because they do spread. So at first, you're just avoiding really big dogs that look exactly like the one that, that barked at you the first time, but then actually you see another dog and it's not really big, but it does have quite a loud bark and it looks a bit wild and the owner looks a bit dodgy. So you cross the road to avoid that one too. And before you know it, any dogs are quite scary. And actually you're avoiding like those little yappy ones who really shouldn't be scary at all. And then before you know it, even hearing a dog bark and you're sweating and you're feeling a bit anxious and it's spreading. And anxiety does spread and grow. Because when we run away, fear grows. Everything is scary when you're running away from it. And that is true, isn't it? Like parents in the room or godparents when you played with kids. You ever done that thing when kids are, kids are going up the stairs or you're behind them? I don't know why we do these things. My parents used to do it with me. You find yourself doing it and then you think, why am I doing this? But as you're coming up behind them, you do that like fake monster thing, you know? And the kid's like, Whoa, and they scream and they run up. Because even though they know you're not scary, when you're being chased by something, you get that little thrill of fear, don't you? Everything is scary when you're running away from it. So sometimes our response to anxiety is about changing that natural instinct and doing the thing that can feel counter-instinct. It feels like the worst thing to do. And the bigger the fear you're managing, the harder that is. Because everything in your mind might be telling you that you need to run. 
Those of you, we, I have a nearly 15-year-old and a nearly eight-year-old. And one of the joys of of doing life with Nathan, who is my seven-year-old, is we have therefore just done the entire Harry Potter experience again because my daughter loved those books and now we've read them with my son. We've been through the whole thing. We've had all the conversations. We've watched all the movies. It's great. Whatever you think about those books, whether you're a fan or not, there is some great psychology in those books. And one of the things uh, in, gosh, is it book three, the Azkaban one, those of you who are in the know, is that there are these characters called Dementors, which J.K. Rowling, who wrote the books, based on her experiences of anxiety when she was quite unwell with it at a stage earlier in her life. And there's this fascinating moment in that story where Harry, who is like the main character, if you somehow have grown up in a total vacuum and don't know the stories, and he is in a class and he's learning how to face another magical monster. And what this monster does is it turns into the thing that you fear the most. And there's this moment in the lesson where he faces the monster and the teacher won't let him face it, literally gets between him and it because he thinks the monster's gonna turn into the big baddie of the stories, who is Lord Voldemort. He's like the scary big baddie. Um, And that they have a conversation later on in the story where Harry's like, what was that about? Did you just think I was too weak? Do you think that there's something wrong with me? And, And he says, no, no, this is what I thought would happen. And Harry says, oh no, actually, that's not the thing I'm most scared of. What I'm most scared of is Dementors. And and Dementals are these, these big black monsters. And what they do, it's really evocative the way that, that she writes them. Um, they suck all of the hope and good stuff out of you. And you feel cold and shivery. And you feel like you'll never, ever be happy again. And they force you to relive the worst moments of your life. They're, they're really horrible things. And Harry says, that's what I'm most scared of. And the teacher said to him this, he says, this suggests that what you fear most of all is fear itself. And that's very wise. And it is very wise. Because almost always the problem with fear and anxiety is not the initial match that your brain has struck. It is the fear that we have of that experience, of that emotion. The fear of the worst case scenario, the thing that might happen that leads us to run away, that gets us caught in loops and cycles of avoidant behavior that grows our anxiety and makes it feel overwhelming. So the question isn't how do we become fearless? The question is how do we fear less? How do we stop running? And that's what I want to look at in this story from the gospel that we opened up with today. So five things I wanna draw out of that story that might instruct us, that might help us, whether it's your own anxiety, because we all have it. You think I'm standing here to you as someone who never experiences anxiety, you are wrong. I'm a human being just like everybody else. And we all experience anxiety. That's the wonderful thing about talking about this topic. Every single person in this room has an experience of this topic. You thought you came here for that person in your church. No, no, we've all experienced fear and anxiety. So how do we manage this better? So here's point number one of five that I want to say. And first of all, this is an important thing. Anxiety is inevitable. You will not avoid anxiety. If you try, what you would have to do is never do anything that you care about. Don't do anything that feels important or valuable to to you. Certainly never have children. Don't don't be a leader. That would be crazy. I mean, basically do nothing, which actually is some days quite tempting. 
So when is anxiety a problem? Let me quickly tell you about three ways that anxiety, which, which could in some ways be a normal emotion. So what's going on when it becomes a problem? Here's the first one. When you just have too many matches being struck, this is where something about the, the phase of life you're in or the way that your brain is reacting to the world is triggering anxiety all the time. It's the smoke alarm that goes off all the flipping time. When it doesn't need to, false alarms. Sometimes when we're super stressed out, even if that's good stuff, because that's the same emotional system that anxiety is on, we can find ourselves reacting a lot more anxiously than normal. And the mistake with stress that we often make is we think stress is always distress. But some of the best moments in life actually can be really stressful. If you look at ratings of stress on some of the psychological scales, there's things like getting married, moving house, going on holiday. Good things are actually really stressful. And if your baseline on that physiological system is raised by something else going on in life, sometimes one of the first signs of it is, is that your brain starts to trigger anxiety where it wouldn't normally. So sometimes we're just experiencing more of it than normal. The second thing is to do with the way that we respond to anxiety and it's the way that it gets you thinking because it does trigger your brain to be, if you like, a bit overactive. You know when you're, you're just aware you're overthinking things, you're just, like my daughter says, you're just being a little bit obsessive now. And this is what anxiety does. It is its job to trigger your thinking mind. But sometimes that's not helpful. Sometimes the thoughts it triggers aren't constructive, helpful thoughts that, that enable you to make a decision about the situation that triggered the anxiety in the first place. It triggers other stuff that is a lot less helpful, maybe relates back to deeper fears or uncertainties that you have about yourself or the situation. I'm such an idiot. Why do I keep doing this? They're going to think I'm stupid. Nobody's ever going to listen to me now. This is going to be a disaster. Nothing I can do can change this. These are the sorts of thoughts that don't help. Instead, what they do is they trigger more anxiety and more unhelpful thoughts and more anxiety, and you get this cycle that develops. And, and when we're caught in patterns of thinking like that, it's like your brain is full of like bits of balled-up paper and dry leaves and twigs and stuff. It's just kindling. So when the, the match of an emotion like anxiety is struck, it doesn't just burn down the match and go out. It sets fire to an emotional bonfire. And, and bonfire emotions are much more powerful, much more overwhelming, and they smolder. They have a much longer duration. Even they're always there in the background. You thought they'd gone out, but, but they're always there and they can flare up again. People will say to me, particularly with anxiety, they will say, the thing is, Kate, I always feel a little bit anxious and I don't know why. I'm just never at rest. And that nagging anxiety that never goes away is exhausting and horrible. And sometimes it's because we've got caught in an emotional bonfire. The third way that anxiety can be a problem is something called emotional hijack. And this really is your brain's emergency scenario. Because some of life's significant moments are so important, you don't want to waste time thinking about them. If you've just stepped out into the road and there is a bus coming at you, this is not the time to start a detailed mathematical analysis of the distance and the time from collision to collision and which is the nearest curb to run to. You just need to move and do it really quickly. So your brain can trigger two things to happen in those moments. And if you think of any emotion like anxiety on a naught to 10, 
10 scale. And emotion in about the, the 8 to 10 zone, that's your hijack zone. And when you experience an emotion that, that, that is that powerful, first of all, as you can see on the screen, it can trigger a physical change, a physiological change on that system that is so powerful, it's almost like it's triggering a reflex. You're acting instinctively on gut instinct. You've jumped out of the way. You've, you've done something. You've run. You've yelled. You've hit out. Whatever it is. And you've done that largely without thinking because the second thing it does is it turns right down your analytical, rational mind. Because this is not the time to think. You can think about what you did later. And the problem is that in those moments when we've done something and we look back on it, that very often we just think, what was I thinking? And the answer is you weren't because you were hijacked, because your brain was saying, this could be life or death, you just need to react. This is what happens in those moments where you just freak out, you lose it. And sometimes you look back and think, that was not a good way to act and react. Fear and anxiety, when it becomes overwhelming, can become panic and it can make us run or hit out, or do things that actually we wouldn't choose to do. Look at what happens in this story then. This is an interesting aside, particularly when we think about this as leaders. So what we have here in this story, you were wondering when I'd get round to the story, right? This is what happens in this story. Jesus is with his disciples. Now this is just after, I'm sure most of you know, feeding of the 5,000. So they've had kind of a busy day. There's been a lot going on and it seems as though Jesus is fancying a little alone time because not only does he, he doesn't just lightly suggest that the disciples get into a boat and go across the lake. The, the language is quite powerful. He literally compels them to do it. So he's not physically shoving them, but it's not far off. It's, it's what I would say to my children, I am not asking, I am strongly suggesting that you do something. Yeah, and you know, no is not really the answer I'm looking for. He, he pushed that, and it's, it's almost as though, the, the, well, the disciples don't really want to go. There's definitely a reticence there. And this is the end of the day. And this is uh, the, the, the Sea of Galilee. That it, it is renowned for storms that can blow up quickly with little warning, often in the dusk in the evening overnight. And, and they are understandably reluctant, therefore. This doesn't feel like the natural time for a pleasure voyage. And and Jesus, meanwhile, is going off for his alone time. He's not even going with them. And it's interesting because actually the the people at that time were also very, very wary as a culture about the power of water. So the Greek word for water has the same root as the Greek word for chaos. So there's this real sense of, of their respect and fear of the space that they were moving into, that they were compelled to go into. They must have been aware that there was a risk that Jesus was sending them into chaos. And and this is what I'm saying to you. Sometimes life will cause us into moments that will inevitably trigger anxiety. Leadership will do that to you. How often is leadership a bit like the next picture on the screen? You know that we have a comfort zone and, and then we have all the space that we're doing our leadership in. And, and it feels to me the longer I go through leadership, that like wherever I get to, I think I'm gonna to get to a space where I'm just operating in my comfort zone, but always the next space that God is calling me into is just one little step outside of it. And the amazing thing is how God does stretch us into things that we never thought we'd be able to do, that we never thought would be part of our experience. The things we get to do with God are awesome, but they're also very often stretches. 
And therefore, in those moments, and because it matters to us, we will experience some anxiety. Jesus may call you into something that feels risky, that feels unknown or uncertain. Learning to manage anxiety well could be one of the most important things that you do as a leader to release the full potential of everything that God wants to do. That is an uncomfortable truth, but it's true. And amazingly, the experience, the opportunity that we have as people doing life and ministry with God is to be completely out of our comfort zone, but to never have felt more secure. Because we can learn this experience of what it means to do this stuff with God, how to hold those moments and step into them as happens in this story. Because here's my number two of the things that we can learn from this story. Fear and anxiety is not truth but it can feel like it. In those moments when everything in your brain is screaming out danger, look at the waves, look at this big expanse of water, look at the dark, look at all the things that could go wrong. It feels like that's truth, but it's not. The smoke alarm going off does not mean your house is gonna burn down. It's warning you something might happen but it doesn't mean it definitely will. In this case, in this story, the situation was scary and it was risky, but God had them covered. But look at the language that's used. You know, the hardest thing in the world when anxiety kicks in is holding your nerve, holding yourself, staying calm, not panicking. Remember, the fear of fear is worse than the fear in the first place. Look at the language used in this story. You know, it's interesting that this happens at the end of a long day, they're tired. How often do fears and anxieties hit us a lot more when we're tired or stressed out? It hits when you're weakest. This was hard work. The the language tells us that two things about what was going on. It tells us, first of all, that they were a long way from the shore. They had been going a long time and they were the furthest away from safety that it felt. They were at their most vulnerable and this is when this stuff happens. They were exhausted and they felt vulnerable. And the other thing that it tells us is the wind was against them. They were fighting. You know, I'm not a sailor. I have been known to get seasick on the canal. But I do love to bike, I love to cycle. And I know what it's like to cycle against the wind. Why is it the wind is never blowing you up the hill? Life never works out like that. And when you're cycling against the wind, it is physically harder. There are, there are website cycling obsessives amongst you, which you can go to and input the wind speed and it will tell you exactly how much energy you have to use when you're cycling against the wind. But the thing is, it's more than just physically hard. There's something against fighting against the wind that is emotionally brutal. It's exhausting. You start to, to experience thoughts like, I can't do this. I need to go. I was on a ride not so long ago where I started thinking, maybe I'll just stop and call a cab and I'll come back and get my bike later. And you have to get a grip of yourself and think, seriously, this is okay, you can do it. Because when we're emotionally exhausted, our reaction to an emotion like anxiety is tougher. The language in this passage is so strong when it says that the boat was being tossed around by the waves. Literally, it means they were being tortured by the waves. It's that powerful a word. Anxiety is a horrible emotion and when you're exhausted and it feels like you're fighting, it's so hard to hold your nerve. Some of us today need to be aware that 
the, the spaces that you're pushing into, the stuff that God is calling you to is, is also a spiritually significant space. And sometimes the way that the enemy can, can, can push us off track is by using anxiety in moments when we're most vulnerable because it's so easy to catch us in those moments, to put us off, to exhaust us. In my household, we talk about enemy fake outs. It's those moments when something's going on and, and something happens and it triggers an anxiety response in you that, that is bigger than it feels like it should be. They're not actually things that will matter in the scheme of things, but they really stress you out in the moment. Not so long ago, I was speaking at something and, um, and literally in the same day, like three things happened. Our dishwasher wasn't working. Our washing machine flooded the kitchen floor. And we, one of my kids came down with what really wasn't well. And I, I was starting to get really stressed out by this. I was starting to get anxious. I'm thinking, I've got to speak. And then my daughter says to me, she says, oh, mum, you, you must have a really important talk coming up tomorrow. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's an enemy fake out. He's trying to get me. So before you freak out, ask yourself, is it an enemy fake out? Is something aiming to catch you with anxiety, to catch you off your guard? It's not as bad as it feels. You can do it. Fear is not always truth. Because look at what Jesus says to them in verse 27. So literally, actually, what Jesus says isn't just don't be afraid, you idiot. Stop freaking out. Get a grip. Sort yourself out. You're supposed to be disciples. Haven't you got this covered? He says two things to them. The first thing he says is take courage. I love this phrase. Me and my family, we lived for two years in France. Uh, and living in French culture, my daughter's fluent in French. My husband's fluent in French. Um, and, and in French culture, if you're going into a challenging scenario, you've got an exam or something, you don't say good luck because the French think that's crazy. Like, why would you leave it down to pure random dumb luck? What they say is bon courage, good courage. What they mean is you have got this, something within you, take courage, you can do it. And this is very similar to the Greek phrase that Jesus uses here. He says, take courage. The, the solution, the resources, the stuff you need is within you. You can do this. That's what he says to them, first of all. And, and that's really important because remember that, that meaning in the word for fear that is about, you, do you need to run? That sometimes what we need to do is turn around, face fear in the full on and say, no, actually, I have got this. I can do it. I can take courage. And the, uh, the amazing thing about what Jesus says and about our life of faith as people of God is the second thing he says, because of course he says, why do you take courage? It's not just in your own resources, in your own ability. It's because I am here. You are not on your own. So when Jesus says then, don't be afraid, he doesn't mean don't have this stupid emotion, you idiot. What he means is you don't need to run You've got this. It's okay. You have stuff within you that means you can do it. Hold it confidently. You're not on your own. I am with you. Some of you today are in situations where everything in you is screaming, I want out of this. I can't do it. And Jesus is saying to you, take courage. I am here. Because actually fear doesn't mean that you're going to fail it means this matters to you and that can be scary, but you can do it. Jesus is with you. 
So sometimes what we need to do is learn how to hold our anxiety, learn literally how to breathe, how to pause in a moment and think, what's the stuff we need to do right now to hold this calmly, to not freak out, to manage to hold it? Because we don't need to run. Number four then is about one of those steps and it is this, when you're facing fear and anxiety as much as possible, don't go it alone. Look at what happens to Peter. And Peter is amazing in this story because in the midst of a moment where everything is looking very scary and wrong, Peter has this amazing moment when he steps out and does something well beyond what he would ever have thought he could do before because it is literally a supernatural thing. He walks on the water out to Jesus. But the, the passage tells us that when Peter sees how strong the wind is, he becomes afraid and he starts to sink And Peter, in his stepping out, has taken a bold, amazing step out of his comfort zone. It's brilliant. But he's also stepped away from his buddies. And it's harder when you're on your own. When you're out of the boat and you've not got anyone else with you, it's hard. When you are facing times of intense stress or fear or anxiety, you need other people with you. Sometimes, remember, when it gets intense, your ability to think clearly goes. You need someone else on the outside who can hold that for you and say, it's okay, you've got this. I've got it with you. We're going to do this together. Any storm feels worse on your own. And Peter's situation is that, of course, he becomes overwhelmed again by his fear and anxiety and he starts to sink. So we do this stuff together as a team. Did you know you were designed to do life with other people? You were never designed to do it on your own. And number five, therefore, is about the ultimate support that we have in these things, which is about fixing our eyes on God. No matter how big the storm that you're in, managing to do that. When he has his eyes on Jesus, Peter is able to step out of fear and in confidence do something utterly amazing. But now look, interestingly, the fear doesn't just evaporate, it doesn't go away. In fact, what happens is Peter is still in a very challenging scenario. And in that moment, when everything in his brain is saying, look at these big, scary waves, you fool, what are you doing? In that moment, he takes his eyes off Jesus and he becomes overwhelmed by it. But look what Jesus does and says. He isn't judgmental. He doesn't beat him up. He doesn't say, oh, I thought you had it in you as a leader, but you've got overwhelmed by this. It turns out you're a bit weak. Best hand over to someone else. No, what he does is he reaches out into Peter's fear to reassure him. Right away, he reaches out, he steps into fear to reassure him, to steady him, to continue him in what he's doing. Remember in whatever you face that you are not alone. As we stand up to fear, as people in relationship with God, we don't have to do that on our own. And that can be the most amazing support as we try and go against our human rationality. Let me tell you a little bit about that. I said I wanted to talk to you about two Greek words that are used for fear and anxiety. And I want to tell you about the second one as we talk about that space where human rationality starts to hit its limits. Here's an often quoted verse for fear and anxiety. Can I just say, maybe it's just me, but often unhelpfully quoted when you are feeling totally stressed out. Anybody have it? Do not be anxious about anything. You think, I'm going to react right in your face in a minute. 
Instead, pray about everything. This is a classic verse about fixing our eyes on God and what that does. But, but I want us to understand again what the Greek here is telling us. This is a different word and it's one I love. Here's the word on the screen. Uh, I'm not gonna try and pronounce that because I will get it wrong and those who are better at you will come and tell me afterwards how I should have pronounced it. But what this word literally means is to be drawn in different directions, for your mind to be divided into parts. It's a bit like we would say to go to pieces. You are literally pulled apart by your fear and anxiety. Remember, the job of fear and anxiety is to grab your attention when something might be significant. So what do you do in those moments when life has got so much going on that you are literally exhausted, you've got plates in the air, juggling balls, whatever metaphor you want to use, you just know you're knackered and you're trying to make sure that nothing goes badly wrong. You are literally pulled apart by your fear and anxiety. There is so much you could be worrying about. Some of us have personalities that do that anyway. There is a, a variation in fear and anxiety about how prone you are to thinking like this anyway. My husband is a lawyer. He is, by personality, the perfect lawyer. We call him a professional nitpicker in our house. He is absolutely the person you want to have around if you want him to spot something that might go wrong. He's very good at that. He writes very, very firm contracts but he's much more prone to worrying unnecessarily. He has been known to be caught sat up in bed at night worrying because he doesn't know what he should be worrying about. Some of you are like that. You are much more prone to literally having your minds pulled in different directions. Now remember that in those moments when anxiety becomes very powerful, maybe because of the significance of the situation you're in, how much this matters, it's happening to your kids, your best friends, your church, the stuff that is most dear to you. Maybe it's just the volume of stuff that's going on. You've got loads happening right now. Maybe it's that there's a lot in your life, so your baseline stress level is high. Whatever it is, you are pushed into that hijack zone. Now, in those moments, your rational brain is already limited, and then it just becomes exhausted by being pulled apart. We need something beyond human rationality sometimes to help us manage fear. And that's what that verse says to us. Don't be pulled apart by your fear and anxiety. Instead, turn those things over to God, and then something will happen that transcends human understanding. Literally what that Greek means is it's beyond human rationality. And thank you, God, because if there's anything we need when we're in a moment where fear and anxiety is powerful, it's something beyond our own rationality. Now, sometimes that can be a friend who's able to hold the, the moment for us, but turning, if you can learn how to place your fears and your worries with God, to fix your eyes on him, in the midst of the storm to hold your nerve, to know that it's okay, that you can take courage because God is with you. That's an amazing resource as you come to manage fear and anxiety. So I love this um, Brené Brown quote as, as we draw to a close on this topic. She says, the thing with fear is we have to recognise we're all afraid. We just have to get to the point where we understand it doesn't mean that we can't also be brave. So often the problem with anxiety is that we treat it as a weakness, we treat it as a flaw, we treat it as something that disqualifies us, that disables us. 
actually it's part of the human experience. In a weird way, it's part of the strength of the way that your mind is designed. But sometimes it can become overwhelming and problematic. It can take a grip of us. It can fill us full of more fear, which then becomes overwhelming. So freedom from fear isn't about not having it, somehow magically or supernaturally being able to transcend our fear and get rid of it. It is about how we fear less, how we can hold fear better, hold our nerve in the midst of the storm, in the midst of things that feel out of control, fix our eyes on God and find something beyond our human rationality that gets us through. Remember the story of the Bible is that actually the amazing truth about how God's power is released on this earth is not through us somehow managing to reach a superhuman new level of brilliance where we have overcome mere flaws and weaknesses like fear and anxiety or stress or the need to sleep or rest or anything like that. Actually, what the Bible teaches us is that God's power is made perfect. That means literally it's released to its fullest extent, not through that human brilliance and superhumanness, but through human weakness, through imperfections, through our flaws, our limitations, our willingness to step into storms and difficulty, to step out of our comfort zone in leadership as well as just in life, not as people who are beyond the people we lead and support because we've got this all covered. We don't experience fear anymore. But as people who are flawed, who struggle just like everybody else does. And somehow through that vulnerability, through our willingness to do that, through the guts it takes, God's power is released more and more into our communities, into the people and places that we serve. And we can help them to learn how to face their fears too, to know that fear is not the end of your story. Fear could be the flaw that is about God's power being released through you. It could be a natural response to a situation you are in. So I wanna finish just by praying for us because I'm aware that this is a difficult topic for some of us, but it might be that it's difficult for people who we're representing here today. So why don't we just take a moment as you're sitting, let's just take a moment of quiet, a moment of pause. We've got five minutes or so before the end of the session, so there's plenty of time. And as we're doing that, let's just practice a little bit of an exercise that is about managing Fear and anxiety, how do you drop your physiological stress level when that system is firing off? And so as you're sitting, you might want to close your eyes, feel comfortable in the space. So if you're more comfortable with your eyes open, that's fine. But just take a few breaths. And as you do that, you might want to put your hands on your rib cage because when we breathe, when we're anxious, we often just take very shallow breaths. And it changes the chemical nature of our body and our bloodstream and can make us feel more anxious. So taking deep breaths has been shown to immediately drop our physiological stress level. So as you're breathing with your hands on your rib cage, you might want to feel, are they moving apart? If you imagine your lungs like a balloon, are you breathing from the fullest extent of your lungs or are you just taking little shallow breaths? And sometimes just pausing in a fearful moment and taking a few good breaths. It gives you a moment to drop from the hijack zone back into a a place where you can think more clearly, to genuinely drop your physiological fear level. There's something called four, seven, eight breathing as well, which is to do with the length of time you spend in each cycle of a breath. We're doing four, seven, eight breathing. You breathe in for a count of four. 
you hold it for a count of seven. That's relatively quick seven, don't like keel over, don't count slow. And then you breathe out for a count of eight. It's like you're blowing out candles on a birthday cake of someone who's as old as I am, and many of us in this room are. Just a controlled breathing out moment. Because taking those deep breaths can help calm us. So as you've been doing that in this moment, let's just pray. Father God, we thank you that we do not face life on our own. We thank you that whoever we are in this space, whatever life is throwing at us today, that you are with us. That we have a source of calm, a source of courage that is beyond human rationality. That you say to us, I am here. You are not doing this on your own. And we just pray in this moment as people are breathing in this space that it would be literally like they're breathing in your Holy Spirit and they're breathing out the sources of stress and fear and tension. And with every breath, they're breathing in clean air that helps to calm and soothe and quiet their minds. That that sense of you being with them in what they face gets stronger and that the sense of being overwhelmed, that, that feeling of needing to run that that would get weaker. We pray for the balance to change in this space right now. Lord God, I pray for us as leaders, as people in ministry, for people who you call to step out of our comfort zones. God, give us the supernatural ability to hold an emotion like anxiety, to know that we don't do it on our own, that we can step out of comfort but into security because we are always with you and you are always with us. Help those of us who right now are in crazy, stormy times to know that you've got this, that fear isn't speaking truth to us. This is not the end. You are not gonna drown. You are not gonna be overwhelmed. Lord God, we ask you would bring peace and still storms in this room today. And finally, Lord God, we pray for other people who we might represent today. We think of people who we might care for pastorally, people in our family, friends, loved ones who are struggling with anxiety, adults, teenagers, even children, because we know this is such a big issue for so many people. We just pray that you would give us the ability to bring calm to those situations, that where we know people who are in the grip of panic, we would be able to bring peace. And that through our prayer, through our fixing our eyes on you, we can help them to hold their nerve, to know that they can get through, to find a way away from fear and panic and running and into your goodness, your light and your life. So Lord God, we fix our eyes on you in this moment and we say thank you that we get to do this stuff with you. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that's with us through whatever we face. Fill us with your wisdom, your courage, and may the potential of your spirit flow through us into the people and places that you call us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. Do check out the website.
If you're interested in these topics or anything else to do with emotional well-being, it's mindandsoulfoundation.org. Mind and Soul Foundation, all is one word. In your booklets, if you look up my bio, you'll find stuff there. Or if you want to look me up, you can Google me, but you will find a lot to do with Prince William. So look up Kate Middleton and Mind and Soul Foundation or Dr. Kate Middleton. I am the other Kate Middleton. You'll find me. Go to Amazon, type in Kate Middleton, go past everything to do with Prince William. And I'm next. You'll be fine. Thank you very much.